There are very few feelings worse than that of being alone. A feeling people with cancer are far too familiar with. But here in Australia, we have one of the lowest population densities in the world. That means for every square kilometre, there are only three people. Can you imagine if you only had two other people within a kilometre of you? But the truth of the matter is that for some Australians with rare and less common cancers, those numbers only get worse. Even if it is a simple journey of Melbourne to Sydney, that is further than the distance between Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Montreal and Quebec. That crosses more than five states. Now imagine that you had to find a way to make that journey while you or someone you love is suffering from a rare or less common cancer. Australia is a very big country. It's dominated by the tyranny of distance. And I, I guess we try to walk that uh, fine line between requiring people to, to travel perhaps maybe hundreds of kilometres to get to a cancer centre in the major city within each state and territory and, and at the same time um, making sure that that treatment is a state of the art and delivers what it promises. From Rare Cancers Australia, this is Radio Rare, the podcast where we share the stories of those in and around the rare and less common cancer community. I'm James Matthews, and today RCA's own Dr Emily Isham will be sitting down and talking with Professor David Thomas as they discuss the newly founded Omico, the future of cancer research, and how medical researchers can maximise these opportunities and breakthroughs. But first, a reminder more relevant than ever, that whilst you may be one of only a handful of people with your cancer in Australia, added together, all of those rare and less common cancers make up a community of tens of thousands of people here in Australia. If you or your caregiver ever need to speak to someone, our specialist cancer navigators are here for you. Reach out on 1800 257 600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Good afternoon, Professor David Thomas. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us briefly what your roles currently are? Nice to meet you, Emily. Um, I am the head of the cancer theme at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research and the director of the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. But uh, I'm also um, the chief executive officer of OMECO, Australia's Genomic Cancer Medicine Centre. Can you please just tell us a little bit about OMECO and, um, and what drove you to establish that? I think science has made it clear for decades now that Cancer is fundamentally a genetic disease. Over the past uh, 10 or 15 years, technology has evolved to the point where we can apply that concept to individual patients to understand what drives their cancer or what made their cancer happen to them. And uh, so the real challenge wasn't about the concept of how we could understand cancers in a more molecular way, if you like but really how we translate that into something that will help patients. So um, originally we'd set up pilot programs based in New South Wales and originally actually in Victoria prior to that. But what we wanted to do once we had the pilot out of the way and could show that we could do this and actually bring treatments to patients on the basis of the information we'd discover, we recognized we needed to have a different approach, uh, maybe not an academic or research-led approach, but one that actually took lessons from the corporate world. 
So what we did was we set up a company, a not-for-profit company called Omico, which brings together the leading cancer centers in every state and territory so that we can deliver the program that we set up to patients closer to where they live throughout the country. Wow, so you can reach out to the more regional and rural areas of Australia as well? Yes, in part. Uh, a lot of the program uh, has to be delivered there through major cancer centres. But uh, the screening, for example, we do by remote telephone consent, so people don't have to travel to take part in the program. What I meant by in every state and territory was more that we have now centres, literally at least one in every state and territory, so that people don't, for example, have to fly from the Northern Territory to Sydney to get treated in the way they did, say, three or four years ago. Wow, that sounds like a, a, a really novel organisation. I don't think I've heard of something that gathers that much data from around Australia and that funnels resources to that many cancer centres. Is this a new kind of idea that you've started? Uh, I guess so. Um, certainly, <laughs> my colleagues uh, raised an eyebrow too and uh, we originally left the, the sheltered environment of a medical research institute to reach out into the community. But uh, look, uh, you know, Australia's health system is divided up into states and territories. Uh, uh, the funding, for example, for all those hospitals occurs state by state. And we, what we wanted to do was to get into all states at once. Now, I guess uh, working through government mechanisms in each state would have meant that uh, a long, uh, time-consuming process, potentially. But by creating a company, um, which again is not-for-profit, so it emphasizes the public good spirit of the enterprise, by creating a company that binds all the major cancer centers in those states and territories together, what we're able to do is effectively overcome those state boundaries to execute what we believe should be a standard of care for all Australians. Australia is a very big country. It's dominated by the tyranny of distance. And I, I guess we try to walk that uh, fine line between requiring people to, to travel perhaps uh, maybe hundreds of kilometres to get to a cancer centre in the major city within each state and territory and, and at the same time um, making sure that that treatment is a state of the art and delivers what it promises. It is important to continue tweaking and perfecting the current model that is our Australian healthcare system. This is part of the reason as to why Omico was established. It was interesting, that conversation with the Ethics Committee. We were asking the Ethics Committee when we designed this trial to accept some very unusual ideas, mostly driven by the concept that unless we did it this way, it was just impossible for us to deliver the promise of precision oncology treatments to patients. We needed to create a basket design, which was unconventional, and they had to get them to accept a much broader remit and definition of the protocol than they'd been used to. It wasn't narrow, it was broad. But we argued that without it making it broad, we'd have to set up dozens of individual trials. And each of those trials would take, say, an average of three to six months of paperwork. And if you had to do dozens of those trials, you could see that it would just balloon out forever and we'd never achieve anything as fast as we needed to. So they, after initially expressing some concerns, I was able to have a conversation about what was in the patient's best interests. And we did that actually with RCA. We um, got Richard and Kate to write a letter about how important trials were for patients with rare cancers. And to the credit of the ethics committee, they, they accepted that argument and made the judgment that the balance of interests was to accept some of the innovation as innovative as it was and therefore unknown, but that, the, that it was better than doing business as usual when business as usual wasn't good enough anymore. It's interesting to think about how many parts of the system need to have to change to get the changes that we want. It's uh, 
It's not just in the labs and in the realm of molecules or drug development or even clinical trials that things need to change. It's actually a social change, I think, That's uh, at least to achieve the sort of scale of impact that we're after here. Sometimes when I feel progress is too slow or the forces of inertia or conservatism seem to be impossible to, to overcome, I can. Uh, it certainly feels dispiriting. But look, I have to say, we've been wonderfully supported by almost everybody that we've come into contact with. And I'm rarely given an excuse for feeling sorry for myself, Emily. So in that organization in Omicode, given that you do a lot of networking and collaboration and trying to get those treatments and the information to patients Australia-wide, do you are you able to do a lot of research at the same time? Do you have both arms involved yes. in, in Omicode? Yes, that's actually a very a, a really strong point for me, Emily. Um, I feel uh, as a matter of passionate principle that research-led care is the, what we should be offering to all of our patients. I don't believe any patient should die of cancer without having access to uh, a research-led clinical trial, which delivers, let's face it, the trials are how we get access to the treatments of tomorrow today. And uh, the question is, how do we increase the current clinical trials participation rate from 7%? That's how low it is. It's, uh, we are only able to deliver trials in Australia in the adult sector to about one in 14 people with cancer. Uh, we need to increase that to be able to deliver the promise of research to patients. And this is one, this is our approach to trying to tackle that problem, trying to democratize access to what is a very esoteric and high powered uh, technology, but to deliver it where the patients are, or at least as close as we can get practically. So why do you think that is so low? That, that, really, that really surprises me, 7%. I really thought there was a higher uptake of clinical trial participation. Why do you think it's so low, given the majority of Australians would be getting treatment from, uh, from a tertiary centre? Well, uh, it's because I think there's been a seismic shift in the way that we think about research and clinical trials. I think not so long ago, when we were using chemicals whose mechanism of action was, was not understood, when we, we were using them to try and find out who would respond and who would not respond to cancer treatments, often with significant side effects, uh, there was a feeling of, uh, uh, so to speak, blind logic to the way we conducted trials. Maybe for that reason, people felt, uh, you know, that idea of a patient taking part in a clinical trial as a guinea pig, you know, this idea that they're not directly likely to benefit from participating in that trial. That concept was familiar to me as a medical student less than 30 years ago. So things have changed, though. Uh, today, we're using reason and science to design drugs and then reason and science to find the patients who are most likely to respond to those drugs. And that concept is perhaps 10 or 15 years old, maybe a little bit longer than that, but certainly not much longer than that. And what that means is that the trials now have realistically perhaps a six-fold greater chance of causing a shrinkage of a tumor than the way we used to deliver clinical trials 30 years ago. Of course, clinical trials now have to go through a much more rigorous safety screening and safety <coughs> checks to, to get to the point that they're actually trialled on humans, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt that Australia has some of the highest standards of rigour and oversight and conduct of clinical trials anywhere in the world. It's famous internationally for the quality of its healthcare and also the quality of its clinical research infrastructure. 
So there's no doubt that the very highest standards apply. But I mean, for many people, Emily, who are fighting against an incurable cancer, the risks of taking part are vastly overshadowed by the risks of doing nothing and letting the cancer continue to grow. 30 years as a doctor and 20 years as a medical oncologist have taught me that far more patients die of cancer than ever come to harm because of the treatments they receive, conventional or research. More often than not, rare cancers don't have a defined treatment pathway and clinical trials are the only option. It might be reassuring for some of our listeners to hear that trials here in Australia today have some of the best research and are very safe in expert hands, utilising the latest technology and beginning at a molecular level. Science has taught us this that there are perhaps half a dozen or more different molecular subtypes all requiring different treatments. And we can only find out which subtype it is by applying these new genomic technologies. So what that's doing is it's turning big diseases into multiple smaller ones. But it has a paradoxical effect because it takes people who have previously rare diseases and unites those diseases by sharing a common drug target, which only has to be discovered by applying the same technology. That means you take diseases which are too rare to tackle from a statistical point of view. Uh, It would be pointless doing a trial because you could never get the numbers to prove the point. Uh, Well, now, potentially, we can find enough patients across many different histological, what we call histological types of cancer, breast, bowel, lung, even rare diseases like sarcomas. We can find that each individual may share Uh, the same molecular target and therefore benefit from the same drug. And so that infrastructure is what Omico is trying to set up in this country. We're trying to set up a national program where patients who've run out of treatment options can get their tumors analyzed by this genomic technology to find out whether unexpectedly they have a drug target and we have a drug that we can bring that might bear on that target to improve the patient's outcomes. So to find participants, scientists like Professor Thomas aren't limited to a single cancer type, instead classifying participants based off their mutation instead of the traditional way, which is to classify according to the location of origin. We just spoke to Dr. Tottle last week, and his research into cancers of unknown primary was based on the same principle, that location is not a very useful classifier because it is unknown. Current cancer research is focused on treating using that precise genetic information from the exact cancer specific to that person. You talked about genomic technologies. Are you able to explain what genomics is and what that has to do with cancer treatment and the technologies behind that? Sure. Well, each uh, human being uh, is derived from a blueprint. Uh, That blueprint we call a genetic code. And we inherit our genetic code from our parents, Uh, one copy of the genome from each parent, which then comes together in us to make us who we are. It makes our hair color brown. It determines 80% of what our height is likely to be. And it also determines our risk of getting diseases like cancer, because cancer is fundamentally a genetic disease. So the things that you inherit from your parents can determine whether or not you're likely to get cancer. But on top of that, each of the roughly 100 trillion cells that make up a human being carries a copy of that blueprint. And that blueprint determines how those cells behave. So it tells a hair cell to be a hair cell. It tells an eye cell to be an eye cell. It tells a brain cell to be a brain cell. Now, in each of those cells, that code can go wrong as it gets copied from generation to generation during our lifespans. And if there's an error in the way in which that blueprint is copied, 
it can cause the cells to start to behave abnormally. Now, the code is a very complicated space. When we talk about the blueprint or the genetic code within each cell, we're talking about a textbook that is perhaps dozens of full copies of the Encyclopedia Britannica. If uh, our listeners still know what the Encyclopedia Britannica um, is, it, it comprises three billion letters in a long sentence that programs every cell to behave exactly as it should, at, when it should, and under the right uh, circumstances. So it's obvious then that copying out that three billion letters, you get mistakes. And those mistakes are called mutations. And those mutations can cause a, a good cell to go bad and become cancerous. Fortunately, we can read that code using these genomic technologies. And when we read the genetic code and find those uh, mistakes or mutations, sometimes those mutations can point out a gene or and it's the protein that that gene encodes, which is now mutated and causes cancer, sometimes we have a drug that will target specifically that mutation. And of course, what that means is that if you find that mutation in somebody's cancer and you have a drug to hit that mutation, uh, then potentially you have a very specific treatment for the cancer that won't affect or shouldn't affect or has a lower chance of affecting normal cells which don't carry that mutation. So there's a whole lot of reasons why this technology, when applied to cancers, can identify opportunities for treatment and treatments which are much more selective in the way that they work than perhaps our older-fashioned cytotoxic therapies that we've used for the past five or six decades. Thank you. That was a great explanation. I don't think I've heard it simplified quite that well before. So it sounds like there are several lifetimes of work in collecting all the information behind all the different cancers, mutations. Many pioneers over the past two decades have done that fundamental work of starting to map in thousands of people the, the spectrum and types of mutations that exist within human cancers. The challenge, in my view now, is not so much to further catalogue the mutation spectrum associated with cancers, although that is important. The challenge now is to work out how to take that uh, abstract ivory tower information and help the patient that's in front of you today. We're trying to change practice. Our purpose here is not to establish whether or not mutations exist or whether uh, drugs might work necessarily, but to take what we already know and try to democratize access to it because it can already change outcomes for patients today. Yeah, that's the key, isn't it? Being able to ensure that there's equity of access to these sophisticated technologies and, and treatments that are on offer that probably lead to fewer side effects than the chemo protocols that used to be used more commonly. Coming up after these words from our patient support team. It's very difficult to predict the future and there are always uh, going to be things that you can't predict that will change things. And that's both for good as well as for bad. And maybe that's what research is about, trying to anticipate and maximise the opportunities that breakthroughs will, will certainly bring. Hello, this is Ailey at Rare Cancers Australia. How can I help you today? Hi, I was just wondering if you could help me with. Our specialist cancer navigators can help you with the challenges that come with a rare cancer diagnosis. Our services are free and there is no criteria for accessing support from us. 
We understand that every situation is unique and no two people are the same. If you have been diagnosed with a rare or less common cancer, our patient support team look forward to hearing from you. Call us on 1-800-257-600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au. Welcome back to Radio Rare. In the first half of this episode, Dr. Emily and Professor David Thomas were teaching us about Omico and the difficulty of finding ways to provide treatments and information to patients across our country. A country that is larger than Germany, Austria, Poland, Norway, England and France combined. It can be very easy to be alone in a place that big. So stay with us as we rejoin Emily and David and look into what it means to be a director at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. Into your other roles, I I note that you're also the director of Kinghorn Cancer Centre. What does that role entail? Ah, well, when I was took the job to come up to Sydney to head up the Kinghorn Cancer Centre, I was tasked with trying to think about how genomic medicine could be introduced into the into the management of cancer patients. St. Vincent's Hospital, which has its medical oncology service run through the Kinghorn Cancer Centre, it was seeing several thousand cancer patients a year coming through the centre. And upstairs, we had all the power, the brain power and the wonderful scientific talent and commitment of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. My job was to bring those things together. The Garvin had invested in genomic technologies. My job boss at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre was to come up with a program that's ultimately become Omico and essentially develop a a process by which research can enter the lives of patients in a patient-centred way so we can learn more and faster about the cancer that humans face rather than that mice face, for example. And also at the same time to actually do things about what we learn so that we can help the patient in front of us. So that's what I've been doing at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. I've been working on trying to build bridges between the clinic and the research laboratories. And as head of the cancer theme of the Garvin, I'm overseeing a talented group of more than 130 researchers who work on cancers as diverse as sarcomas, breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancers, all of whom are working at the bench to make fundamental discoveries about what makes those cancers tick. So I've been trying to bring those two worlds, which have been separate for such a long time, together in a way that is centred around our patients. At at what point in all your medical training and your years did you realise that this area was your passion and, and where you were heading for your life's work? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I haven't been asked that before. Um, Look, uh, many years ago when I went into medicine, I was interested in the way that humans respond to stressful circumstances. I was interested in what it meant to be a human and cancer attracted me because it seems to me a crucible for all the challenges that all of us face throughout our lives in various ways. I I was originally interested in psychiatry, to be honest, until I, I learned that Psychiatry is not about the way all of the normal person responds to an external stress, but rather very often about the way in which um, minds go wrong, if you like, become diseased. 
So going into oncology was because this struck me as being the, I hate to use the term battle, but the, the theater of war for what it meant to be human. And I thought I could be useful at the same time as understanding how people thought about and managed and lived their lives in the context of a life-threatening disease like cancer. And in the course of doing that, the question of being useful is really critical. Obviously, you don't want to be a bystander watching these uh, tragedies. So uh, it seemed to me that we knew so little that science was critical to being an effective doctor. And I did a um, PhD early in my training, and I got hooked on it. And from that point onwards, was trying to find a way of weaving together my interests in understanding and helping understanding cancer and helping cancer patients with trying to do that through research. And uh, of course, the tide of history sweeps over all of us. Uh, and in the past three decades, the emergence of genomic technologies and an understanding of disease has advanced to the point where somebody like me who thinks about things in a research context finally has the tools to be able to bring that back into the clinic to help patients in the way that we are. I traveled overseas after completing my medical training to Harvard to do a postdoc at Harvard Medical School. I never saw a patient in Boston, but I did learn a lot about research. I learned a lot about what it meant to do research at you know, at the human apex, if you like. Boston is such a fabulous uh, research center, has so much talents, so much resources. It's where the ideas that we take for granted today are actually invented. And I learned what it was like, I guess, to be working with people who were making discoveries of a really fundamental kind. And uh, that gave me a kind of an important sense of perspective when I came back to Australia. During these last few months, the COVID pandemic has swept across the globe, affecting hundreds of countries to varying levels. I asked Professor Thomas for his thoughts on how COVID has affected the cancer space in Australia. I think there's been a bit of a downturn in the number of clinical trials that are being offered and patients are certainly being discouraged from coming into hospitals uh, just because you don't want immunologically compromised individuals such as cancer patients coming into centres where you might also have patients with COVID. Um, so there's been certainly an adjustment uh, of the system, but I have to say from our own experience, our program that Omico is running called the Molecular Screening and Therapeutics Trial, since it's literally the only option that many of these cancer patients have, and because of the promise of the outcomes of receiving treatments on the basis of those technologies I was talking about, it, it's remained a priority at those centers. And all the centers have been able to continue enrolling onto the program even during this time, which I, I think probably Australia has done better than many places where I think it would be hard to continue the trials of that sort whilst facing uh, ICUs that are overflowing with sick uh, patients with COVID. A pandemic has actually made, given Australia a kind of unique potential uh, advantage in the sense that because we have such low rates of transmission of COVID, our health system is relatively unimpacted by comparison with, say, Italy or Spain or the UK or the US, which means that for a first class health system to be able to continue to have some focus on killers like cancer makes Australia a fantastic place to be able to conduct clinical trials, clinical research. Um, so I think in some ways, if we can organize ourselves well in this country, I think we're in a position really to emerge from this rather dark time with COVID actually stronger than ever and more competitive and more able to attract those trials for our patients. Given that your life is so <laughs> intertwined with cancer and research and Omico, are you able to switch off and, and what do you do to, to switch off? 
Well, I don't know that I live a perfectly balanced life. You'd have to ask my wife that question, Emily, to get a true answer. But um, what do I do? I play the guitar. I'm a classical guitarist. So, and uh, <laughs> the classical guitar is something um, I'm a self-taught guitarist, but I've been playing for about 40 years now. And uh, I have to say there is no, there's no horizon in sight. I, it continues to present the most wonderful challenge and as well as being one of the continuing bedrocks of my daily life. So that's one component. I like to go running from time to time and I like to listen to podcasts of, of uh, various kinds that keep me entertained about the world of ideas, classical philosophy and also modern thinking like the black swan uh, concept of Nassim Talib, so relevant to coronavirus, the, the unexpected disasters that actually shape history and how ill-prepared we are for them. Those are ideas in which I'm interested in. I don't know if that's a disconnection from uh, cancer. Uh, cancer seems such a predictable problem in some way. But, uh, you know, I guess the point that Talib was making is that it's very difficult to predict the future. And there are always uh, going to be things that you can't predict that will change things. And that's both for good as well as for bad. And maybe that's what research is about, trying to anticipate and maximize the opportunities that breakthroughs will, will certainly bring. And although in some ways with your classical guitar, having no kind of end or ambition in sight, just learning as you go and doing it for enjoyment, that's kind of unpredictable in nature. Yeah. And it kind of has that, that flip side that you, you'll never, I suppose, no one can ever be a perfect master at, at an instrument because there's always room for improvement. Mm. I'm only speaking from experience myself, and I'm sure that I'm much more amateur at my instruments than you are at yours, but oh, it I'm seems like it's a little bit, of, a bit different to, um, to cancer where you have had so much success. Uh, yeah, look, this is it's such a private thing uh, in music, isn't it? And I, I think of the pieces that I play, and I've played them for 40 years, <laughs> getting hopefully just marginally better year on year, none, none of which would ever be, you know, worth sharing or uh, inflicting upon anybody, any listener. But for my own personal journey to understand those pieces of music, they're like old friends. And uh, it's a very personal matter, I think, uh, music. The, the world of cancer is a kind of um, a way of, I think, trying to make a contribution during the time that we have available in our professional lives to return to the community, what the community has created for us. I think uh, many of us feel that. I think it's common, actually. And I, I also suspect that over a lifetime, all of us will make a, a sort of indelible, unique contribution of one kind or another that's literally ir irreplaceable. This has to, happens to be the area that uh, I happen to be working, but I think it's, uh, it's wellspring as a common human instinct. Are there, are there any cases that have left their mark on you and have stayed mm. with you long term? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I, remember, <clears throat> I remember when my first, my first patient on the bone marrow transplant service at the Royal Melbourne more than 20 years ago, it still sits in my mind, her journey. And she, she, she lost her fight with uh, aplastic anemia. And I remember her husband, they'd just been married, she was young. Her husband walking out of the positive pressure ventilated rooms of the transplant unit with a picture of their wedding under his arm and all that, that was left. So, uh, and I remember uh, her name and that's always a good way to sort of measure. Uh, I guess all doctors are like that, aren't we? That uh, 
we remember these things. Hopefully they're the things that we learn from and try to provide us with a sense of continuous narrative. And I think about my most, uh, more, more recently, my uh, one of my patients with 37, with three children and a metastatic osteosarcoma. And having had seven lines of therapy fail her, going on to a trial and not being able to open the trial in time and how that informed my discussions with the ethics committee about who was protecting whom. And I have to say, um, the outcome of that was that the ethics committee agreed that it, uh, patients were not necessarily protected by paperwork when they were fighting for their lives. Um, I think there is a sense that's of urgency about all of this that patients constantly focus the mind on. Yes, so the answer is yes. So how close do you think we are to changing the way we treat and we fund treatments for cancers here in Australia based on all of this exponential growth in the technologies that are developing? Look, I think close enough to smell and almost taste. I think a decade ago, I think the jury was out about whether the, the principles of precision oncology, getting the right drug to the right patient at the right time, that idea, um, I think there was a question about whether it would actually work. I think now it's pretty clear that it is the way forward. And that value proposition is rising year on year as new drugs are developed, but that clearly make a huge difference if only we can find the drug targets through these genomic technologies on which everything is based. So I think we're at the point now where within the next five years, universal access to those technologies for a patient who has an incurable cancer should be something that governments, our country should aspire to, if only for the reason that getting ahead of the game places Australia in a unique opportunity globally to be a center for what medicine is evolving into. Rather than joining the game late and being uh, second to the party, Australia is in a position to actually lead the way. We're small enough for that to be possible if you think of size as being an advantage, as it so often isn't. In this circumstance, I think we've shown through COVID and the way that the government is able to draw the community together that we, we're capable of doing things that larger countries simply can't. I hope that in 10 years' time, a lot of what we've set up now will have morphed because other parts of it will have become subsumed into just what everybody should be able to expect as standard of care. But I hope that where it's morphed, it's, it's moving to anticipate this, where the science is leading us in 10 years' time. So that science is being brought into the clinics in 10 years' time for the changes that will become mainstream in 2040, for example. I think we should always be looking five or 10 years ahead with the best uh, instincts and intelligence that we can use to try and pick where the winners are and to bring that, those, that potential opportunity into the lives of our patients as quickly as possible through research. I'd like to see a system where research clinical trials are universally accessible and are regarded just as another part of the treatment spectrum. And I'd like to see us diagnosing cancers at an earlier and more effective stage so that you know, surgery still cures the majority of patients who are diagnosed with cancer and making a molecular surgeon would be a, a wonderful part of that future. For me personally, um, I imagine that I will be writing and analyzing, uh, writing papers and analyzing genomics of cancer risk and trying to think about how we can use that information for early detection. I think unlike the therapeutic side, which I think is ready for prime time, I think 
the future of early detection and personalized cancer risk management is just beginning. And I imagine that in 10 years' time, uh, that'll be where we'll be... where we are today with respect to precision therapy, we, are, we will be at in terms of personalized cancer management. And I would love to be to be able to contribute in some way to that when the time comes. Yeah, that's fascinating. And of course, then we have cancer survivorship issues to deal with as well, given that most people will be getting cancer at some point, but being cured from cancer. So it's a whole different experience in oncology, isn't it, really? Yes. One of the areas that I think is most interesting in the future, one we're setting up today, is the idea that there are roughly 230,000 Australians now who have had a cancer diagnosis and who are effectively cured by the treatment they've received. But they're allowed to go back into the community as though that was the end of the matter. Now, heart disease specialists taught us three decades ago that when somebody's had a myocardial infarction, you, after you fix up their acute Uh, infarct, that there was a whole program to try and reduce the risk of a subsequent myocardial infarction by various interventions. You would never dream of having somebody declare themselves as at risk for a heart attack and then say, sayonara, come back when you have your next heart attack. But that's what we do with cancer today. And I think as part of the future, when somebody gets a cancer young, we'll be offering them uh, routinely germline sequencing to try and understand, is there any reason why this happened or is it just bad luck? And for the fraction where there's something to be learned from it, I think we'll be delivering tailored, personalized, humane, general practice care to try and increase the chance of them living long, healthy, happy lives. Um, At this point, cancer is a reactive condition rather than one that is systematically, proactively managed. Maybe in the future for those patients, we'll be offering some faster, cheaper more accurate uh, screening test, which will take them five minutes of their year to have done, but do it at the age of 30 rather than at the age of 50 on everybody. And there'll be other people who will not need screening at all because the genomics will tell us that their fate is not going to be cancer, it's going to be something else. And so we can save the dollars on screening them pointlessly and, uh, and use those dollars to screen those who are at greatest risk more efficiently and cost effectively. That's a sort of... Mm one potential future that's, I think, quite credible and worth chasing after. And that was Professor David Thomas, a humble and remarkable man. We are so very grateful that he could take the time from his schedule to speak and to share such brilliant information with all of us today. I'm Dr Emily Isham, and I'll catch you all next week. While we are working together to shorten the distance between cancer patients, treatments and trials, We still have a long way to go. I hope this week's episode helps put things in perspective for our listeners who may not have experienced the detriments of such a large country. For those who know this too well, we hope that groups like Omico keep your hope alive. And before I leave you with a preview of next week's episode, remember, whilst you may be one of only a handful of people with your cancer in Australia, you are not alone. Next time on Radio Rare, Dr. Emily Isham will speak with medical oncologist and a senior staff specialist at the Flinders Centre for Innovation in Cancer, Professor Bogda Koswara. You know, I remember when I was a teenager, I was reading, my sister was studying at medical school and I managed to lift off a book of her, of sort of oncology textbook, and it was full of really scary pictures and not a lot of good news. And now... Mm. 
you know, our biggest problem is that we're going to have a lot of cancer survivors. I think that's awesome. Radio Rare is produced in-house at Rare Cancers Australia and is hosted by Dr. Emily Isham and me, James Matthews. Thank you to this episode's guest, research director and lab head of genomic cancer medicine at the Garvin Institute of Medical Research, Professor David Thomas. The show is mixed by Alexander Smith, narrative writing by Ailey McMaster and Alexander Smith, reporting by Dr. Emily Isham. We are edited by Christine Coben and myself, and our episode music is from Audioblocks. You can listen to all of our episodes for free on our website, and you can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Simply search Rare Cancer Australia and click the subscribe or follow button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to keep up to date with written stories from patients, carers, and information regarding rare cancers. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back shortly with our next episode. Bye for now.